Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning into Truth and Justice. You are listening to the Friday follow-up for Season 14, The Reply Briefs, Part 10. This week, we heard the breakdown of Jay Wilde's trial testimony, as well as discussion about the tap-tap-tapping. We wrapped it all up with some angry Bob. We have a lot to discuss, and joining me this week is Bob Ruff, and on a break from her assignment, Miss Janet Varney. But before we jump into the meat of this, do we have any housekeeping? Did you say Zach Weaver, or did you just say... You didn't say what your, did I say? Yeah, I don't think you said your whole name, but you said our whole names. You should let them know exactly who you are. I'm Zach Weaver. And that's Zach Weaver. Okay. <laughs> I don't ever say my name. I've never said my name. You don't ever say my full name. It caught me off guard. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like he sprinkles in our full name sometimes. Just to I very rarely. People. I don't. I've only said my name on here like twice. People are just now learning who this random mm-hmm. guy is that's talking. Mm-hmm. There's, a, uh, there's a voice at the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Uh, house, housekeeping wise, bunch of stuff. Bunch of stuff. How do I want to start? But the good news or the bad news? Oh. What do you think? I don't like bad news. Can we not have any? Well, I already gave it to you. <laughs> you already know it. You've forgotten it already. Okay, so here's the thing. We had a case selected, ready to roll. Like, like we're moving forward. I had talked to family members. We had located case files, and we were getting ready to move forward with all that. Then, like the next day, an innocence organization agreed to review the case, which means They have to take the case files and review it and decide if they're going to take it and then decide if they take it, if they want the podcast to go, which is great, is great for the case. It's the best thing that can happen for the case. Not great for us because, you know, we we can't, because of that, we don't want to start a coverage, find out two months from now that the new attorneys on the case have decided they don't want to do the podcast and we're stuck in the middle of it. Plus, we don't have, the case files are all paper. And what I was going to do this week was see if I had somebody in this area, any of our listeners that wanted to help to digitize them, if somebody maybe owned a print shop or something or had access to uh, like a giant scanner so we could get that done. Uh, I was going to be like, let's go Truth and Justice Army. Let's get it done. But now all those paper files are with this innocence organization and they're going to be digitizing them and they're going to be going through all that. So long story short, the case that I was going to be ready to start here, I was hoping in three to four weeks and ready to roll with it. Now is not going to be the case. So now we're in a scramble trying to find another case and we've got to figure out all that scheduling stuff. Right? So, so I'm just being transparent with you all. That's where we're at with that stuff right now. So the case selection team is kind of back to the drawing board looking to see if there's anything else out there. If you all know about a particular wrongful conviction case that you want to take a look at, shoot us an email through the website and we'll take a look at them. That's the bad news. The good news is, for those of you that were listening last week, I was talking to Rabia about releasing the full audio from Jen's interview and Jay's two interviews. They've never been released before. No one's ever heard them outside of anybody that's connected to the case. You've heard pieces of them, but not the entirety of them. While we were live on the air last week, Rabia said, yes, she agrees. She's going to get it done. She has gotten those audio files to me, and I have them cleaned up. So because I know we have some time and where we're at on the main feed in the series where we just talked about all those interviews for the next three weeks, I'm going to be releasing for the first time ever the audio from those three interviews in order. So this Sunday you're going to hear for the first time, Jen's full recorded interview. I just finished with all of the going through and I say editing, I'm not editing anything out. All I was doing was going through and making sure that you can hear it and making sure that any like phone numbers, birthday stuff like that are redacted, you know, bleeped out of it. So that's good to go. So that's going to be this Sunday. Next week, we'll do Jay's. And then the following week, we'll do Jay's second interview. So we can really dig into those. 
I do have a project I want to do with them when I have a little more time where I want to literally take. So in, in this episode that we just we're going to talk about today, you know, the, the prosecutors say that basically Jay and Jen told the same story. So what I want to do now that we have these full audios is put together for you the section. Here's where Jen says this event happened. Here's where Jay said this event happened. So you can see back like here for in your own with your own ears the actual differences in what they said happened were. So we'll do that too. I'll probably put that out as like a bonus thing at the end because I do want to get back to the Reply Brief series, wrap this up, have Bob on, all of that. So that's what's coming and then we'll finish the Reply Brief. I was going to just put them out at the end of the Reply Brief, but it just seems to me since right now that's what we're talking about are these interviews that now is the time to put it out. And uh, the chat's going crazy about this. They're excited about it and they're excited for you to hear it too, Zach. Um, looking forward to it and have those conversations. So I'm looking forward to doing that. So I, I saw a couple people in the in the chat also said they were going to email me about a case. That's great. So for the people that always think that we have like this innocence bias and all that, you should know. But by, by from this, like this is how strict we are, and we have tons and tons and tons of case submissions. We filter out a lot of them. You know, we go through a process first. We get a lot of people that will submit cases for sexual assaults, as I've explained many times before. I just won't do those. I'm not going to relitigate something in public with a living victim who believes the person that's convicted is the person that assaulted them. I will not do that. So those go. And then it's, you know, so we pretty much we land on just the murder cases. And then I have to actually believe the person is innocent. And I have to actually believe from the screening that there's also something we can do. We don't want to just spin our wheels and do nothing. So it takes a long time to narrow that down to a case that's going to work. And then sometimes like this, the rug gets yanked out from under us. It, again, not in a bad way. This is the great, like, I'm thrilled for this person that this innocence organization is, t- is looking into the case. That's the best thing for them. But it just, it just makes production a little, a little tricky. So moving forward, that's what's going to happen. I don't think we have any other housekeeping stuff. If you're listening to this on Friday when it drops, hopefully uh, Zach just won the comedy competition in Niles last night. For you guys, we'll find out uh, tomorrow for us in real time. And with all of that, unless you guys have anything else, I think we can get right into, I want to know what Zach thinks about episode or part 10. I understand why you were so upset at the end of part 10. Okay. <laughs> I get it. Because listening to their part 10, they, they do a really good job of selling it. They do a really good job of selling it to me. They, they seem like they reconcile a lot of things. They make things plausible. Alice literally says in her own words, what Jay does makes sense. And he has plausible excuses for all of his lies. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they talk so formally and they really, I mean, they sold it to me. Well, and the thing for me is like when they, when they, when they button it up with, they basically told the same story, mm-hmm. which could not be further from the truth. I agree with that. I, I, well, I, first of all, I do agree with that, especially after listening to yours. But I did feel that way listening to theirs when they said that, that they're like, it's basically the same story. I'm like, well, it's, it's not. Yeah, it's not, not at all. Not at all. Like. The same part of the story is like Jay is there. Yeah, that's that, the, the only thing that's of, the same. Yeah, and some of the some of the places. Well, not even really that. And that's when Brett says, and I played that clip for you. When Brett says, "The places remain the same. The times are just changing." It's like, really? She said Best Buy. He said Edmonton Avenue Strip. She said she picked him up at Westview. He said she picked him up at home. How are the places the same? Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, too, just to your point, Zach, that was one of the things that I, I appreciated so much about this particular episode was the whole kind of it doesn't matter, it does matter kind of rant. 
just in terms of like, if none of this matters, then why did the police work so very hard and the prosecution have to work so very hard to try to make it into something sellable? Like, if it doesn't matter, why does it matter? Because it clearly matters. I it's mean, like, that was really that compelling. Of, yeah, to say none of it matters. If none of it matters, then why were they asking about all of it? And I'll quote Brett. Brett says, Jay is providing the lyrics and the cops are providing the beat. That's another really clever selling point that he's trying to provide to me as a listener. He's saying, look, Jay did mess up these two stories, but the lyrics are basically the same and the cops are just rearranging them, which again, in a layman's that I don't really know the case. Again, they do a pretty good job of trying to tie it together on the surface. It breaks down once you start looking at it, but it, but it does for a yeah. Well, that's why I was, I mean, I recorded that a long time ago, but I remember I was, I was really frustrated with this one because it was just, as I'm listening to it. Clearly. And for me, like when, you know, I go through the interviews, I compare them, I'm listening to them, I, I'm making sure I have all my data points lined up and then I'm hearing them tell me things that I just know aren't true. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can you say that? How can you tell these listeners that aren't digging through the case file that are taking your word because you are a professional, you are a prosecutor. You are telling them that you've done all this research and you're being unbiased and neutral. And then you're telling them these things that you they are absolutely not true. Yeah. As well, you can tell, I was and, frustrated. And at the beginning, they take uh, 10 to 15 minutes to justify the tapping or make excuses to make the tapping go away. Mm-hmm. Or they, you know, they, they, they make it very laughable that tapping could do anything. Because I don't think the way that I feel it's being presented to us is that there was a piece of paper and the officer is tapping locations on the piece of paper so jay gets his story correct yeah but they are trying to present it to me as if he's just tapping and that's supposed to be a trigger for jay to know something yeah they say it multiple times like he doesn't have esp or you know like they keep going off we're in trial we we, you know we try to give signals but it never works but you're in a non-filmed room you know i mean it's being recorded but you're not being filmed it's a whole lot different, I feel like. Well, yeah. yeah. And I think you you also did a good job of kind of counteracting the the idea of like, what's the big deal? If you have something, if you're trying to go through something and you need to make sure that like you stay on topic or you stay on track, then, you know, maybe you do have a little, maybe you are. Yeah. Look, everyone knew they were pointing to the cell phone records or everyone knew they were referring to something. They talked about it during the trial, like all that kind of thing. Like that does kind of get in your head because you're like, oh, yeah, well, I guess. If you have to revisit stuff that you've already talked about and you want to make it as clean and concise as possible for someone who tends to, if you're trying to argue, like this person's attention wanders or this person's memory, you know, tends to have this convenient way of like bending when you need it too least or whatever, that there would be this kind of like, well, yeah, you got to refer back to this thing. Like you can sort of go, oh, okay, well, I guess it's not that unreasonable. I guess everyone knew that it was just calling back to like, no, remember, we need to touch on this next, opposed to it feeling like, it's actually framing the story. They did a good job, too, of talking about that and talking about like, yeah, it's, it's very normal for us to direct the witness using evidence. That's all, that always happens. We always direct the, the witness to evidence to show their story. Yeah. And again, and, and me just listening, I'm like, oh, they're saying they do this. It makes sense. But you broke it down very nicely saying, yeah, you do that as a lawyer. You don't do that as a police officer trying to figure out what the hell happened. Yeah. And that was one of my main frustrations with it is, is they kept coming back to that, how normal it is. Trust me, I'm a lawyer. I, mm-hmm. it, that they prep witnesses for trial with all this. And, and like I said over and over again, I'm like, yeah, of course you do. That happened before trial. That's not what this was. 
This was a fact-finding interview by the police. And in that case, no, it's not normal. It's not okay. They're supposed to be drawing information out of Jay, not helping Jay find the best way to respond to their questions, which is what they're talking about. And if you don't have anything else, Zach, then we'll get, we'll get into these listener questions. Sounds good. Well, actually, I had one more thing, if you can believe oh. it. It's not necessarily connected to the rest of the conversation, but it is something that you just mention, you touch on in this episode, and I don't think we ever come back to it. You just mention in passing that in one version, Adnan takes two calls and one of them, he's speaking Arabic. If you followed the case through other channels like Undisclosed, you've heard a l- maybe a little bit more about this, but I just wanted to address it in case I didn't see any questions on the follow-up. But that is an interesting little tidbit if we're talking about what information the police think it would be useful or not useful to have in this interview with Jay while he's trying to be helpful and supply all of this stuff, where we hear about the red gloves, where we hear about, oh, he threw up, oh, he, no, he didn't throw up, that kind of thing. And so what I've heard discussed um, elsewhere about that is because of the caller and being identified, the, the, the anonymous tip that came in that someone identified as like, oh, that person sounded Asian or that person sounded, I meant he sounded South Asian, that there mm-hmm. could have been a conversation behind the scenes with the police and Jay where they're like, so is it helpful if we, if maybe the person that calls him while he's burying him is speaking another language and therefore would have an English, would have an accent when they're speaking English, like the sort of like, where does that come from kind of thing? Like, is it one? It doesn't matter. But for those of yeah. us who have been we've been drawn into this idea of trying to, like, decode what's really happening in these conversations. It does make you wonder, did that come solely from Jay or was there a point at which it's someone thought it would be useful until they find out, like, oh, he doesn't speak any yeah. other languages? At what point do the cops, if you believe the theory that we believe that, you know, Jay's making all this up, they're leading him into this story. At what point does Jay realize they are 100% on his team to make this story work? Because I've always thought that this starts out with Jay telling a story, trying to get himself out of trouble, and it doesn't make sense. And so they're still playing to him as though we're still investigating, but giving him the nudges along the way. And that kind of comes down to the what you were what you were just talking about the the guy that was them speaking Arabic. Like they know they need two calls. They have these two calls that ping this tower, so they decide that has to be the burial time. So if that's the burial time, then Jay has to corroborate that being the burial time by saying that he witnessed those two calls. Because if he didn't witness those two calls, then how are they there burying the body at that time? And so you know, we make one Jen. Because remember, when you when you when you listen to Jen's on Sunday, but even if you've read the transcript till now, she's saying that yeah, I had called. You know, there was a there was this evening I called, Adnan unanswered, said Jay's busy, he'll call you back. But she says, like, I didn't know, like, the only reason that I thought this is the 13th is because you all told me it was the 13th. Right. You know, so so we don't know where that, that demarcation is between where she's trying to remember things that actually happened and helping, you know, add information to help bolster Jay's story. So they already got Jen saying that. So like, cool. So we can make one of those calls Jen because she said she called and it was short and to the point. Who's the other one? And it could be as simple as they see on the call log that, you know, before that they, there was Yasser. Maybe they look at the name mm. that maybe that was Yasser calling and they went that way. Or who knows? Or Jay might have just added to that. I don't think we'll ever know that, but it's an interesting little detail. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that because yeah. we didn't really talk about it. Um, and I don't think we ha- we'll have reason to talk about it elsewhere. Okay. Yeah. So it's also even more interesting about it is that Adnan doesn't speak Arabic. Right. Right. 
Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics to make temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. And this was a huge selling point for me. I don't like to sleep with a blanket. I prefer to just cover up with a sheet at night. Usually in the winter, I have to break down and crawl under a comforter. But since I've had my Miracle Made sheets, it's sheet only for me, no matter the season. I love them. And besides the thermal regulating quality, Miracle Made sheets are also self cleaning. These sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. And Miracle Made sheets are luxuriously comfortable, without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and they feel as nice, if not nicer, than sheets used by some five star hotels. And they're designed for your skin. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash truth to try Miracle Made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code truth at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. And Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash truth and use the code truth to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash truth to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Sarah says, okay, just to circle back on this, and I get it, it continues to be a little confusing just because of the ways it's been misrepresented as well. But Sarah says, I'm a little confused about the way the cell phone evidence was presented. Did the officers have the cell phone locations prior to when they interviewed Jay the quote unquote first, aka recorded, time? Or was that only the cell phone numbers and times and the tower data with cell site locations came between and before that second interview, tap, tap. Thanks. No, and th- that is confusing. It's particularly confusing in the, pr- the prosecutor's production of it because they told you when they were going through the timeline that on February 22nd, the police got the cell site locations. They, they filed a subpoena. The judge ordered it and AT&T sent it over. They had that on the 22nd before any of these interviews. But then later they say that they didn't have that information before the interview, so before Jay's first interview, so they couldn't have possibly have fed him those those locations. So yeah, so they on the twenty second they had it. After his first interview, they they requested it again or requested more. I think they requested it again. Weirdly, but mm-hmm. we have like the receipts from when they had already received it. So I don't know if that was them trying to then trying to create a record to look like they didn't have them before, or they're just sloppy and they lost it. They actually literally lost it somehow, or yeah. Which would make some sense, too, because in Jay's first interview, like, it doesn't line up with those locations at all. Right. You know, but they did already have the locations. They requested them again. And then um, I think it was McGillivary uh, had this map created. If you watch the HBO documentary, Susan Simpson has, like, puts up, like, a copy of the map that shows, like, the coverage area of each sector. And then now, all of a sudden, you see these calls, Jay's story, changed to fit to be traveling through all these sectors 
at the right time, except, you know, the, as I said, the, the big giveaway there was one of them was labeled wrong. The, the trip after he drops Adnan off and goes to Christie's, well, that was because that call said he was in the area where Christie lived, but we know that that's not actually the tower that was hit. The tower was actually located over by Jay's house, but they just had the wrong Dorchester Road. There's one in Baltimore and one in, in I was, Cantonsville, Cantonsville. I, every, every time I say it, somebody tells me I'm saying it wrong that's from the area, so sorry about that. But whatever it is, they, uh, they were, it was mislabeled on the map, and that's one of those things where we can source that mistake. So why would Jay, on his own, change the story to fit a place that just so happens to fit with the place where McGillivary thought the phone was? Right. And, and that's it's because McGillivary is the one telling the story, not Jay. And if, you're, and if you're a person who's died in the wall, Adon's guilty, you just go, well, yeah, maybe he changed it because he in that moment he was trying to please the police. But the basic story stays the same. He, you know, got the call. Trump pop. That's yeah. it. Buried him. But, you know, buried like that's none of that matters. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and again, like Zach said, they sell that in a way that's like everything's the same. Like they got a call. Why are you freaking uh, out about picked- this one thing, Bob? Why are you freaking yeah, he, out about Christie's house? He picked up Jay. There was a trunk pop. And they say that and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess he did see all those things. Like, he said the truck popped happened in two completely different places, completely across another side of town in completely different circumstances with different people there. The only thing that was consistent was that there was a trunk pop. Right. And that's apparently enough. Mike C. says, we know that the cell phone evidence cannot match up with any narratives. Do we know what the cell phone evidence does actually show? You can do what the police try to do and come up with a theory, but that's all it would be. I mean, to me, when you look at like on January 27th, right, you see a similar sequence of calls another Wednesday when Adnan's at track practice. To me, it looks like Jay had Adnan's car and phone and went and bought weed while Adnan was at practice and picked him up. Simple as that. And then after, you know, after track practice, who knows? Like they were just hanging out, cruising around, doing whatever. Like in a world where Jay and Adnan are both innocent of this crime, it could be anything but you know the adnan calling him and picking him up like, again we heard from will on the track team that it was it was not an it was not out of the ordinary whatsoever for jay to have adnan's car and pick him up from and take it during track practice and pick him up afterwards with the calls to patrick who was jay's source for marijuana and and, and patrick lives right over there by leakin park yep. where those, you know those towers are pinging so that to me like that's a pretty Decent theory that Jay was just driving around picking up pot while he's waiting for Adnan to get out of practice. Well, I agree. And, and what's in, what's interesting to me about that, I guess, is that when you think about the stuff that gets inserted into the story that seems so mundane, that does make people crazy, like, why did they go to McDonald's if blank? Or why did they go to Patapsco if blank? Like, those are the things that if you're just trying to fill space with what you would normally do in a day and you're not, it's not real to you that ostensibly there is a person who has been killed that is part of this equation, then none of then those things all sound like totally normal, like a normal thing you would do in a day. Like, yeah, it's totally normal to go buy pot from someone and smoke some pot. It's not normal if you've just killed someone and you need to figure out what to do with the body. So you know right. what I mean? It's like, well, you're he's he's actually filling it with stuff that seems crazy to people. But you're like, it doesn't seem that crazy if that's what he knows, because that's what a day would normally contain and perhaps did contain. But now the right. thing you have to shoehorn in is also somehow that someone was killed. Well, I, I think you said exactly that. I think that it's not that he's making it up. I think that that stuff did happen at some point. I agree. And he's yes. just recalling it and using it to fill in the blank. Not, exactly. Not necessarily like providing completely false information for that day. He didn't do that that day, but he's like, what have I, what have we done? Or maybe yeah. they did do that day, or, th- that day, right? Yeah. They just didn't kill. Hey, like, like Janet was saying, it, 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 
None of that stuff seems weird unless you have a body in a trunk that you know you have to bury. And you're like, you know, before we go bury that body, let's go to and the, 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 the craziest thing is the, is the trip to Christie's. That's not even Jay's friend. It's Jen's friend. Like, hey, man, before we bury this body, let's just go hang out with this this girl I know. She's Jen's friend. We'll just knock on her door. We'll hang out with her for a bit before we, you know, go bury the body. Like, what? Like, that doesn't make now if it's just like a couple of high guys driving around like, I don't know, man, let's cruise by Christine Jeff's house. Like, that makes sense. Right. Doesn't make sense when there's you know a body to be buried somewhere. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Andy says, is there any chance that Bob might be able to get Jim Clemente to do a statement analysis on Jay's statements? To which I would say, I feel like it would be very similar to what you did. So I don't know that he needs to. And I think he, I think he did. Didn't I have him and Laura Richards on? I had them analyze Jay's statement back in season one. I know I did because I did it at Jim's house when I was in L.A. I was like, I don't know because I, I was told not to listen. Andy, we've got really good news for you. Go on and head back to season one and pretend like we made it just for you. I don't know the episode number off the top of my head, but that was I was in L.A. And I had the audio of the of the interviews and I went to Jim's house and me, Jim and Laura sat and ate pizza while they listened and analyzed it. And then we went to Jim's studio and recorded it. Now, Emily says they never finished. I think maybe that was one of those things where you guys got so deep into the weeds that you want you were hoping to pick it back up. Maybe that sounds familiar. That, that to could me. be. I will double check that. And uh, if that's the case, then I'll see. I know Jim's super busy, but I'll see if maybe he can he can have a look at it. I'd be curious how his since he's the one who taught me to do statement analysis, how close mine comes to his. Okay, great. Caroline says, well, now, Caroline, you had a, a sort of a triple whammy post for which you apologized regarding the length. And I kind of need to skip the middle part, which is um, is also good. So folks I encourage you to go join the Facebook page if you're not already on there. But Caroline says, are we to believe that Ednan, teenage criminal mastermind, receives a call from Baltimore County PD between 6.07 and 6.24 p.m. on January 13th, and then, knowing people are looking for her and presumably her car, goes back to the I-70 park and ride, gets in her car, and then drives nearly 15 miles around town before ditching the car with a body in the trunk, including an impossible leap over I-695 that isn't reconciled in the drive-along. Am I the only one who finds this insane? I find the whole thing, the whole story insane. So no, I don't think you're the only one. And she's talking about, if you look at it, the document, I think it's called Jay's third interview on the website, but it's, it's where they actually had him like drive around and show him like the places and they timed like how long things took. And it's a disaster for him to try to get all that. Like shit, there's, there, there's stuff that's like not reconciled. Like how did you get over this highway? Which way did you go? How, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of problems with that. To answer your question to Andy's question about the episode is episode 33 of season one. Episode 33. What's it titled? Jim Clemente and Laura Richards. What's the description say? It says in this episode, Bob sits down with FBI profiler Jim Clemente and goes on about talking about the recorded interview. Well, that's what I'm trying to see if, if he if they did the whole thing or I'm or, afraid to click it and analyze the recorded interview of Jay Wilds. That's all it says. OK, so I feel like we wrapped it, but I think maybe we're going to I know we were going to he did a profile. And we were going to at some point come back and talk about post-defense behavior, hmm. which I don't think mm. we ever ended up circling back to. But yeah, I think I, I feel like we got through the interview because I, I remember being stunned. So this is how this went. Like we, we sat there around this table. We played it. You know, they would stop it and rewind it and go back. They both sat silently taking notes and didn't say a word to each other about their notes. And then we went right into the recording booth and recorded. And it's like you can tell like their methodology is so similar that when they went through their notes, like they both were like picking up on the same things and had the same analysis of all the same stuff. Episode 25 is his profile. Profile. Okay. 
And then, um, Caroline, I'm going to read the third piece of your post. Uh, Caroline says, lastly, and this is the worst slash hardest question and probably the one I struggle with the most. Why Adnan? They had Jay, a poor black kid in Baltimore in 1999 with a drug record working in a seedy adult video store who basically handed himself over to the police and admitted he was part of the murder. If they were willing to jump through the mental gymnastics to fit Adnan in, why would, why would they not land on Jay first? I don't think he did it more than any, uh, any more than Adnan, but he basically confessed. If Ritz and McGillivary were looking for an easy win, this was it. It would have been so much easier to pin it, everything on him. Why go through the t- trouble of making it more complicated by adding someone else to the equation? Is it because they needed one more person to be a witness and Jen wouldn't back up the story if only Jay were implicated? No matter how I turn this around to look at it from all angles, I just can't get this to pencil out. Yeah, it, it's I think you're overthinking or or not or you're thinking of it in a dimension where like Jay's already confessed to it, right? We got to back up. What's the entirety of the case against Adnan? Jay. Jay. So what would be the entirety of the case against Jay? Nothing. So in Jay's story, it's Adnan did it, right? So they start talking to Jay. If this is how this went down, this is how I think it went down. You know, okay, we got this tip about Adnan. We pulled his records and, and you'll learn when we get to the conclusion of the series, when you see how they've operated in other cases, their method of operation to close cases has nothing to do with finding the right person. It has to do with finding a witness to say someone else did it. That's how they close their cases. And, and this is not my speculation. As I've said many times, we know for a fact, this is how they operate. They get a witness to say someone else did it. So they couldn't pin it on Jay. There was no witness to say Jay did it. All they had was a cell phone that was bouncing around, calling people that have no connection to Hay, moving around town. That's it. That's all they have. They start leaning on him and saying that, they, that, that they're going to put it on him, which we talked about a little bit. I think it was last week. Like, it's a weird jump of logic. Like, the whole reason they're talking to him is because of the cell phone records. But then because of the anonymous tip, but then they start talking to him and then they start, well, we think you did it. But the tip wasn't about the cell phone records, right? So mm-hmm. there's nothing There's nothing there. There's no substance. There's no substance with Adnan either unless you get a witness to say that Jay did it. So in that, in that scenario, the way these two detectives, three actually, layman's part of this too, these detectives operate, is they would need Adnan to say Jay did it. Right. That's how that would work out. Because without that, if it's just Jay, and the story he tells is Adnan did it and he called me to bury the body. Then the only way they could go after Jay instead was to say, well, he's lying and he actually did it. It would be a super weak case for that because they don't have any proof that, they, that he was with Hay, how he could have, what was his means, right? Like, how did he come in contact with Hay? How did he connect with her? How did he, you know, because that, that part wasn't part of the story. The actual murder was not part of the story. So Jay didn't say anything about him being anywhere where he would have needed to be to be part of the murder. He only came in afterwards. So that's why they couldn't go after Jay. They had no case against Jay. They had no case against Adnan unless Jay just straight up said Adnan did it and I was a witness. Well, and they got the anonymous call and he's an ex-boyfriend. I mean, that's right. your you have these. Those are perfect pieces to fra- yeah. to to create a frame. And I don't mean a frame in the I'm excited to frame someone sense. I just mean that's a framework. For, it gives you something to the- build off of. Yeah, it's just for those guys, the way they are, you know, there's looking for anything to close a case. And it's like, oh, we got an an anonymous tip about this guy. He's the ex-boyfriend. He's our guy. And he's going to be our guy. It doesn't matter. Come hell or high water, he's going to be our guy. Sonia says, why would 
the cops move the car? Why couldn't they just say Jay led them to the car in the airport parking lot? You've touched on this a little bit. I don't know if you want to touch on a little bit more here. It's keep in mind, that's just a theory. Like that's just my own personal pet theory about what happened. And my theory where they have, you know, they, they've got Jay, they're, they're doing with Jay what they've done with other witnesses in these other cases. They're going after Adnan, but now they have a problem because the car isn't, they, they can't manipulate and use the car the way they want to because the car is in a different jurisdiction. It's out in the county. You also have the problem that the cell phones, the cell phone records, there's not enough time and space between calls and locations for them to have gone and dropped the car at the county. That's a huge right? problem. So, or or, or at, the, at the satellite lot. They, they, there was no time for them to do that. So for Adnan to be guilty, the car couldn't have been out there. And then they couldn't really tweak or do much with it because it was not in their jurisdiction. It was out in another county. Speaking of the car, Kay just wanted to revisit. We, we've had um, a couple of questions and posts from Kay pointing us towards the uh, NCIC reports that possibly showed Hayes' car was in Baltimore County. And another question, just kind of revisiting how the cops, how they would move the car. Would they have special tools to hotwire it without re- leaving a trace? Or would they have to remove the steering column to do so? To the first question, the, the whole NCIC thing, I believe my understanding was that was kind of shown through the in the HBO doc that the what it was is you have like the plate was entered into the, the system by a police officer in the county at some point before it was found. And so the theory was somebody must have had eyes on the car somewhere out in the county. It sounds like that was either proven or it's believed to be that's what it would look like if someone was just punching into the computer like, hey, what's that car we're looking for? And they and they went in to look for it that way. So that it, in either case, it's definitely not proof that they did see the car in the county. More compelling is in the progress reports before the the car was air quotes found. One of the progress reports says that as far as you know, like the different elements of the case and it was like the, for the car being located. And it's indicated on that report that the car was found. I don't remember. It was like there's like a number code that they put into a box, whatever. I don't remember. It was a long time ago, but it was indicating that they had already found the car. And then something that we haven't talked about in the series, but I talked about back in season one, is we all heard the news report. If you listen to season one. So after Adnan is arrested, they go into a press release. I know from being a fire chief, the way that works is you have a public information officer or press release that where you give the details to the press. In this case, it was like the police public information officer giving a statement. And in his statement, we don't, unfortunately, we see like B-roll of him talking. And then the reporter says, you know, that, that Heyman Lee was found strangled and her car was found. It's a place on Edgewood Avenue. And then they say, based on what the press release they got from the police, they said those were key. De- I believe the quote was key details that the police withheld from the public until they made an arrest. Hmm. So in their words, in that report, they already had the car. And they just were hiding and they weren't saying anything about it. But there's, again, that's, there's some steps of separation there because you have a reporter saying what the police officer had said. We don't actually hear the police officer saying it. So it's just another thing to think about. Oh, and then the, uh, they want to know about hot wiring the car. There's, there's no special tools to hot wire a car. You just have to, you know, you've got to get to the wires in order to hot wire it. So the police would have to do, I think the Police might be a little more cleaner and neater about it. Like what we see here, where just the one little plate taken off and not not wires ripped out from underneath the the steering column. But, I, but to be honest with you, I've never I, I have never reconciled that in my mind. Like if I'm right and the car was actually in the satellite lot, would they just bring a tow truck in and grab it and move it? 
or would they hotwire it and just dr- have somebody get in there and drive it? Seems risky. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't know how all that would that would shake out. I mean, all, all we know is that plate was missing, which is you would you if you remove that plate, you could hotwire it. And the windshield washer thing was pulled out, not broken, but pulled out, which is also would be in the way to hotwire it. So I don't know. If this were the television show The Wire, upon which David Simon actually spent a lot of time with the Baltimore PD, but this feels like fiction, but I don't know. Like, there's also a scenario in which you have somebody who's like your CI and you're like, hey, go get that car. I'm going to knock off a couple of charges, give you a hundred bucks. Why don't you go get that car? Why don't you move it someplace? Give me an idea where that is. Also possible. Then, then you're not, you know, I mean, of course it's risky, but like, so I'm saying like, I see that on a TV show. I don't see it here, but I also feel like I continue to see stuff here that I'm like, this would only happen on a television show. And it's like, nope, that's real life. It's been proven. Sorry. Yeah, they really yeah. did that stuff. So yeah, stuff happened. I don't know. But, but that's one of the main reasons why I've never said like, I think the evidence supports this is what happened. I've always been very careful to say that this is just a theory because I, I've never been able to connect those dots. Yeah. To say, yep, this is how they did it. This is when they did it. This is, you know, the the methodology they used to do it. Because I'd never been able to make that much make total sense for me. So I can't say that I, with any amount of certainty, that that's what happened. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that you continue to clarify that because I'm sure somewhere on social media, it's already being thrown out there that you're 100% sure that's what happened, despite the fact yeah. that you continue to say, I'm not saying I know that. I'm very much not saying I know that. Touching on Joni T before we wrap up. Joni says, what do you make of Judge Wanda Hurd's statement about the verdict and credibility of witnesses who testified and were subjected to cross-examination? And just to put that into context, when the filing came through from Hayes' family about the this vacation and Marilyn Mosby saying, you know, our entire office has concluded that there is nothing here, one of the things that came through was, I believe you would call it an ambicus brief, from the retired Judge Wanda Hurd, who presided for those six weeks over a non-second trial. She put forth something on their behalf saying like, and by the way, I feel like all the evidence was very clear and the jury, you know, made the right decision and all the, you know, the evidence that was presented in the trial showed that he was guilty. So that was what was submitted. And that's what Joni's asking about. Just wanted to clarify that for anyone who doesn't know what that reference is. I don't know if you have an opinion about that, but I definitely do. You already know more about it than I do. So I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is. Well, my opinion is that the person who sat during the trial heard exactly the same thing that we've all said, like, based on what you would hear in a trial, we can understand why the jury made the the decision that they did based on how everything was presented and what was done. So to me, there's nothing new there. To me, that's and I I, I say that respectfully to, to the judge. I appreciate that she's advocating for the victim's family. I understand that. But to me, that is not compelling at all, because that's just somebody who was there who heard all that information saying, yeah, that information seemed good to me. Yeah, well, and the basis of the vacation of the conviction was Brady violations, which means by definition, stuff that the jury didn't hear that they should have heard. So like you said, probably her statement is accurate based on what the jury heard. They've got a guy on the stand who they all think is going to prison, is doing this out of the goodness of his heart, tells them I was right there. I witnessed it. And he tells them a story that matched the cell phone records. Now, as far as what the jury heard, yeah, makes sense that they got the conviction. If the jury had heard everything we've uncovered and Susan Simpson has uncovered and Robbie and Colin and everybody along the way, these cases are always so frustrating for me when I think back, like if I was the defense attorney back then, you know, and, and they say at 709, you know, Jay gives his story. And while he's they're burying the body, this call from Jen comes in and it pings the Lincoln Park Tower. Bingo. I would love to come up on cross-examination and be like, 
So at 7.01, you were on the phone calling Jen Pusateri from this tower up by Woodlawn. At 7 o'clock, Adnan was using the phone. making. It. So were you guys together at that point? Oh, you were? Okay, so, and then what did you do? And then I drove down, well, we had to go get the car then. Okay, so that's how long of a drive? That's a 10-minute drive to get there? So you got off the phone at 7.01. That means that you got to the car at, at 7.11. How were you in the middle of burying the body at 7.09? You, you know what I mean? Like, like, the jury never heard that. It was all just like, like nobody ever did that legwork. Like, no, nobody found out how ridiculous those 709 pings being dur- coming in during the burial is. So far out of the realm of possibilities, it, it's outrageous. But they didn't hear that. Yeah. And I understand this argument, too. Like, certainly there were points that Christina made, Gutierrez made. There were certainly attempts to dig into some of that stuff. Maybe not that exact specific thing, but there were there were things that she was trying to catch Jay out on. There were things that she was going for. For me, if you don't have time to read the entire transcript uh, of the trial, uh, few do. All you have to do is check out her closing statement. It is awful. And I'm sorry that she passed away. And it's clear something was very, very wrong that to me stretches beyond somebody just trying to get money because they were sick. I I don't you can't follow it. I mean, you can't follow it. It's incomprehensible. It gives me kind of chills and makes me sick to my stomach because it's it doesn't make any sense. So forget everything else and just imagine hearing that closing statement. Like I, there's just nothing. It's it's extremely disturbing. And then compare that to Murphy and Yurik's closing arguments where they told this really compelling story. They mixed up, they changed stuff around, mixed stuff up, and they made it sound great. To me, like the whole her whole strategy was off. Like her strategy was trying to discredit Jay by pointing out his discrepancies, right? Like, well, but first you said it was at the strip on Edmonton Ave, but then you, these are things which they did well. They had plenty of time to prepare for that. He could come up with excuses for why those locations and things change. I think that a better strategy would have been to use solid data points that he can't get around, like those calls I was just talking right. about. Like, that he can't pivot away from that. You can't, like, if you were here, at 7.01, you could not have been here at 7.09. So where were you? What was going on? What's the, what, you know, you know, and she just didn't do that. Yeah. There's so much wrong with, with that, her whole approach. And there's so much, there's just so much broken there. And also don't stipulate to the lividity evidence. Uh, anyway, right. I think we're out of time, but yeah, that's all so I that's got. that's it. All right. Well, thank you guys all for tuning in. Remember, for the next couple of weeks, you guys are going to he- get to hear for the first time the, the full recorded interviews. In order, uh, Jen, then Jay's first one, then Jay's second one. And so I'm planning on doing just kind of a little bit of a preamble before at the beginning of the episode and then just put it out uninterrupted and let you absorb it. We'll talk about it in the follow-up. Same thing next week, and then and then we'll be able to compare. And it's really going to be big for these next two weeks because you just heard how Jen's first interview and Jay's first interview really fit together. You know, that Brett and Alice, Gutierrez was so focused on the second interview, but what she couldn't get away from was Jen and Jay's first interview when they really told these stories that fit together. So you'll see. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you up front, like when you hear Jen, Jen is, I really hope that a lot of you really try to focus and pay attention to it because Jen is very believable through a lot of this interview. I've just reviewed it a couple times this week and, it, and it's very believable in the parts where I think she's telling the truth. When she's kind of relaying stuff Jay told her and she's just like, I... I don't really know. I think like I think she's being very honest. I've always like I've always said, I think Jen is being honest about what Jay told her. I think where the lies come in is when she tries to insert herself. And that's what I want you to be listening for. You figure it out for your own self, but pay attention 
the parts that she says she actually experienced. She's going to tell those stories a couple times through the interview. Pay attention to, is she able to repeat the same story both times in the same way? Or does it change in those different things? And then we'll talk about that all next week. And with that, I've got to get going and uh, Zach's got a hard out. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and wrap this thing up. But thank you again, everybody uh, in the live stream. Thanks so much to our patrons. And thank you all of you for just for tuning in, listening every week and engaging. I'm really excited to talk about this interview next week. I'm excited for all of you to hear it. So with that being said, we'll talk to you guys next week. Make sure you tune in on Sunday. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com designed, created, manages, and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay Wood-Yomnick, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. It doesn't cost you a penny, and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible. If you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at Bob Ruff Truth, Janet can be found at Janet Varney, and Zach is at Z to the Q. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, everybody, you get, I, I'm going to have to pause here just for a second. Keep it recording, but my daughter's in the middle of doing our FAFSA. Apparently, this is... You know, I could tell that he wasn't really 100% listening. It happens. Well, they're like hitting me up like, what? hello, come on, I need this. I'm like, you know that I'm... Anyway, uh, if both parents provide it, or if they don't support the student financially, no, and refer to the parent. I don't know why I'm giggling. <laughs> nothing to do with me. I just, <laughs> just can't help myself. We're having a good time. It always happens. Aren't you glad you took a break from? No, <laughs> that's from why I, I I I listened to the episodes as soon as I could. And what I always think is they don't need me. They do such a great job. They're so fun to listen to. And I'm like, yeah, this is why I always listen to them before I had anything to do with the podcast. I didn't come into the podcast to fix anything. I mean, 
You helped. You helped a lot. Well, I don't know. I thought it was very, it was very, it was very well run. The follow up was super informative. It was great. Again, too much Bitcoin, too much, far too much in the pre show. Far too much toe. Far too much. But otherwise. Okay. Sorry. I'm back. So, so what is it?